Coming at you from the Wee Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 64 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. I'm actually broadcasting now from Paris, France. It seems like I'm going all over the place now, and I'm not trying to humble brag, but it just is what it is. But we actually have a great episode on Deck Free today. We've got interviews with Alex Del Barrio of Sports Radio 610 and Hunter Atkins, who's an enterprise sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle. But before we get to the interviews, uh, Kevin, you were actually busy this past week with uh, another podcast. Is that right? Yeah, it is. First of all, there's nothing humble about that brag. That was just a straight-up brag, so I want to call you on the carpet for that right out of the gate. And second of all, I did. My buddy JT Barrett that I met out doing some high school football. I got to tell you, a lot of people do high school football. I feel like uh, it's not just the minor leagues per se. Like There are a lot of uh, guys out there that are successful on the come that are also covering high school football, so it makes me feel a little better about myself because I do love my job, but you know, I don't want to cover high school football forever. But, uh, but yeah, I went on the Takeover Podcast, ESPN-branded podcast with JT Barrett and uh, had a really, really terrific time it's not uh not entirely safe for work i guess so you know uh tread cautiously if you go into that there's some there's some adult themes in that podcast but nothing too explicit and had a great time talking texans and cougars and uh exotic dancers with them so just to be clear that is not the ohio state quarterback jt barrett correct and his Twitter handle actually says JT Barrett, open print, not OSU, close print. So, yeah, he's very, very open about that. I was not confused going into it. I do not feel like I was duped. I knew exactly who I was dealing with. And he's a total pro, and it was a pleasure. So you guys should definitely listen to me on that. So while Jeremy, I'm, I'm sure that you have not had any interactions with someone that has the same name as a, a famous college quarterback. I'm sure you probably uh, were in tune this past week with the uh, the presidential or the vice presidential debates and, uh, you know, the, the controversy stemming Donald Trump that just continues to unfold. But uh, Mike Pence, how did he look for you? Uh, he looks pretty good. You know, I, I did not get a chance to watch the whole debate, but I read um, a few transcripts of it and I saw a couple of um, focus group polls that seemed to indicate that Pence did a pretty good job. I think he edged out Kane. Um, some of the impressions that uh, I, I watched uh, a couple of focus groups and the, the, the reaction to Kane was that he was kind of unhinged. He interrupted a lot. I think the total count was like 71 or 72 times that he interrupted Pence. Um, he just kind of kind of came across as a little too aggressive. Um, I think Pence, even though I think the substance of what each guy said didn't really matter, it was just his calm demeanor and the fact that he presented himself in a very kind of calm, cool, and rational way. And Kane just kind of didn't uh, respond to that right and just kind of came off as unhinged and aggressive. So um, this Pence, uh, you know, Pence kind of had the job going in this debate to sort of stop the bleeding for the Trump campaign since the first debate. I don't know if he did that. However, uh, he certainly set up Trump to... Um, uh, maybe use this VP debate in a positive way going into his next debate with Hillary here, uh, which comes up pretty soon. Yeah, I'm not sure that there's much that Donald Trump can do to actually save his campaign, but I thought Mike Pence looked pretty good and potentially setting up a, uh, a run for 2020. Uh, but one of the things that uh, came out this past week was the Houston Press. Uh, they released kind of an annual best of what's going on in the city. This covers everything from uh, best wine bar to best restaurant to best tacos, best late night sandwiches, all the way into sports. And uh, the best head coach, Tom Herman, U of H football. 
Yeah, and well-deserved there. First of all, in the interest of full disclosure, I have applied to work for the Houston Press on numerous occasions dating back, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years. So take this all with a grain of salt. But you know, they always kind of give the impression that they're really hip. They're too cool. Uh, these best of awards, I don't know. I, I tend to agree with them here, but something about the Houston Press, it's like, come on, guys. Like, uh, Do you have to be such insiders here? But uh, Tom Herman, obviously the best coach in the city of Houston. Who else would he even be? I mean, you go to Kevin Sumlin, I guess. I wouldn't say that he's remotely near as hot as Herman is right now. The most interesting one that stood out to me would be the best commentator. Uh, of course, they gave best play-by-play to Bill Brown. Uh, well-deserved. I'm not sure exactly how they differentiated there because Eschenfelter also does uh, play-by-play duties as well. But Kevin Eschenfelter, a guy from Root Sports we've had on this show uh, a couple of times and a guy that we enjoy hearing from a lot. So uh, you can certainly hear the best commentator in the city of Houston per the Houston Press on the Weekly Brew Podcast. Interestingly enough, we were not voted best podcast. I didn't know if we had to submit for it, if they're just sort of scouring the internet for these. Uh, I felt like that was a bit of a slight. Yeah, so the way that it actually works is I, I believe there's a nomination process, which we will definitely make sure that we are nominated next year at this time. Uh, but fans actually vote on it. So uh, fans uh, get to vote in an online poll. Uh, and that's uh, essentially what we want you to do. So next year when we are in running for the best podcast within the city, we want you to vote for the Weekly Brew Podcast. We're going to go ahead and start our campaign now. But uh, some other interesting things of note, if you're not going to name Tom Herman uh, the top coach in Houston, I would probably go from a baseball perspective and go with A.J. Hinch. I think he's done a great job in 2017. Looks very bright for the Astros with a lot of young talent returning. Uh, Jose Altuve actually named uh, the best Astro in this poll. Uh, Orbit, best mascot. I don't think that comes as any surprise. And uh, one thing that was surprising for me overall was the best Texan. And Jeremy, I know that you haven't had the chance to look at this if you're naming the best texan who do you name and why it's definitely gonna have to be jj watt uh, but him being out on injury i might have to reconsider my ballot i don't know he's uh he kind of stands out in my mind um of course there's um brock osweiler i have to give him a little bit of credit but um you know he's kind of sputtered a little bit i don't know i'm gonna stick with jj even though he's on uh he's he's injury right now so this polling was done prior to J.J. Watt's injury, and uh, J.J. Watt, arguably the best player in the NFL, was not named the best Texan. That award actually went to DeAndre Hopkins, who was uh, not quite on the same page as Brock Osweiler through the first four games of the season, but uh, a very interesting poll. Again, this covers everything from food to dining to music venues, so we highly recommend that you check it out. Just go over to HoustonPress.com backslash best dash of Uh, It's got some great content on there. And again, remember to vote for the Weekly Brew Podcast in 2017. We'll make sure that uh, we are up in the running. But uh, one thing that we also want to make sure that you do is you start the campaign for We Desserts, the best bakery within the city of Houston. And without question, it's not even close. I've sampled them all, uh, or at least I'm going to tell you that I did so that I appear impartial. They do give us money uh, in order to help promote them. Don't let that distract you. I'm totally, totally objective here. They're a fantastic bakery, a fantastic dessertery, if you will. They basically make dreams come true is what they do. That's not something they've authorized me to say. I'm just I'm just stating as a fact. Uh, if you have a dream, you can make it come true there. So drop by We Desserts, OUI Desserts at 3411 Kirby. Uh, it's right there in the heart of downtown-ish kind of on the south side of downtown, but where where things happen, essentially, and uh, and see what they have, first of all, in the cases, because there's just a smorgasbord of delicious things there, and then ask them, hey, I got something I'm thinking about. This is a dessert I saw one time on a television show. I can hardly remember what it is. Can you make it? I guarantee that they can. They love it when I make promises on their behalf. So drop by We Desserts. You get 10% off for being a listener of this podcast. And as the voice of Houston, we definitely recommend that you go check out The Best Bakery, and that's We Desserts 3411. All listeners of the Weekly Brew Podcast get 10% off. 
just tell Penny and Jen that the guys at the Weekly Brew sent you by. And additionally, we want to make sure that you follow our social media platforms as well. Just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. You can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But as mentioned at the top of the show, we have two great interviews on deck today. We've got Alex Del Barrio from Sports Radio 610, talks a little bit about the Texans and WWE. We also have Hunter Atkins, who's an enterprise sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle. But we've got a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. So we now welcome into The Weekly Brew uh, one of the newer members of the Houston Chronicle sports reporting crew, uh, Hunter Atkins, who joined the Chronicle in April of 2016, uh, written for Rolling Stone, Forbes, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, list goes on and on. It is humbling to read your uh, your writing credits, Hunter. Uh, how you doing this morning? And, uh, and more importantly, uh, I want to just be on the record here. I applied for the job you ended up getting as the enterprise sports writer. Uh, no jealousy. Congratulations to you. But uh, how have you been enjoying it so far? It's been great, and it, clearly you did not get the job only because you did not sleep your way to the top like I have. So <laughs> you're yeah, absolutely uh, right. You know, don't take it. Don't take it personally. I do. I never take it personally. No, I, it's great, and thank you for having me uh, on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, it's been great. I, you know, I, I figure it's worth explaining why I left New York City, my home. Uh, I was born and raised there, but the truth is that although I had written for all those great places. It was uh, on a freelance basis, and it was just financially an unviable uh, path. And, you know, I saw this job opportunity, got in contact with uh, Randy Harvey, the editor here at the Houston Chronicle, um, and it was, it was a really like a magical fit. Uh, the stuff that I get to do, which are more, you know, like long-form features, uh, enterprise stuff, is what I've always wanted to do. And it's been beyond any expectation I actually could have had. I've been elated to be here and I really like Houston. I think that it's an excellent market. You know, look, it's the fourth fourth largest city in the country. Um, Every team it has also, I would say is if not, you know, the top tier, most popular, most interesting team in the league, it's right on the cusp, you know, so it's better than covering some teams that, you know, are maybe in the middle of nowhere and uh, seem headed toward endless losing seasons. So, I've, I've loved it. It's been a really, uh, just a blessing. Randy Harvey was uh, the guy who got back to me and told me very politely that I was grossly underqualified for the position you ended up in. So again, congratulations. I'm a big fan of the Chronicle guys. They actually, uh, full disclosure, own the company I work for now, Houston Community Newspapers. But uh, So you've got to do some interesting stuff. I, I really kind of envy your position because when, when you're out and about like on the town, I know you're going to Rockets games, you're going to practices, you're kind of everywhere talking to everyone. And, and are you just kind of looking for the story as you're sort of in these places talking to these people? Well, that's a really generous way to put it that like, I go to these places and I can even find them. You know, like, that's very, I mean, it's a lot of credit. Now, you know, the truth is that a lot of these ideas have to come from watching a lot of games um, and paying attention to some of the fine details that haven't been fleshed out or that were maybe, you know, smaller components of other people's stories. The truth is that a lot of the stuff I get is from stuff I read. Um, a good example, like the best example of that ever is actually, uh, it's not something I've done in Houston, but one of the most popular stories I ever wrote was about LeBron James's biggest fan, like a young man who loved him so much, he ended up going to jail for it. Um, and I wrote it for ESPN, a guy named James Blair, and he's some young kid, a college student in Ohio who ran onto the court during LeBron's uh, penultimate year with the Heat. And maybe it was the final year with the Heat. Anyway, um, 
And, you know, the kid got some buzz on the Internet. And Lee Jenkins of Sports Illustrated wrote this really fabulous long feature about LeBron James following uh, one of the championships he won with the Heat. And in one sentence, he mentions this fan. And it just kind of stuck. I thought, God, like, maybe I should find this kid. And it ended up being a great story. So a lot of the stuff I do revolves around that. I have to give a lot of credit to the staff at the Chronicle, who, which is filled with people that are from here, that are from Texas, that know this place way better than I do. So uh, that, that's really how I generate ideas or, or, or get assigned stories. Um, otherwise, you know, it really is <laughs> it's quite lucky if something falls in my lap. Uh, so I go to these places, but I really I got to give credit uh, to wherever else it's due. So I have uh, gone to your website, read through some of your pieces. I didn't read the uh, LeBron James one, but I've read some other ones. And you're a very talented writer who can write on any number of subjects, and you have. You talk about the drug war, any number of things you've gone into. What makes sports appealing to you? Why was that where you landed? That's a very uh, uh, generous thing to say. Um, well, I, I just think that you know, sports, is it, it's got this awesome way to both tap into an audience it already has, Right. You know, the sports audience, uh, certainly if you check Twitter, is very devoted. It's a very devoted readership. And then if you color outside the lines or you do a story that has broader appeal, it's not necessarily about, you know, the most vigilant or esoteric components of games. Um, you then reel in, you know, the non-sports audience. Um, I think that that's a real pleasure. That's a real privilege that very few other components or genres of journalism have. Um, and I, I, it's not so sophisticated why I like this genre. It's just, I gravitated towards sports writing when I was growing up, I was a total you know, sports nerd, like a lot of people. Um, at the same time, I happened to love English class and I, I, I read a lot of, uh, sports illustrators and New York times sports section and the history of the magazine. And it does seem to invite an elevated kind of writing much more than say, you know, like food writing. Like I, I actually love food. I love restaurants and I, I read some food writing and some food reviews, but it just doesn't have the same um, gravitas that sports writing seems to have had. Uh, and that's just a historically true thing going back to like Red Smith of the New York times in the uh, middle of the 20th century and Gay Talese and people like that. Um, so it, it actually, it, it invites a very beautiful, intimate kind of language and how it is covered. Uh, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that sports is deserving of that sort of great, tremendous writing or that sort of tone or that sort of importance. It certainly is not compared with, you know, much harsher, you know, real life issues out there. But um, it just has a great tradition. Sports writing, I'm saying, has a great tradition of taking it seriously, of, of treating it uh, as something that people feel intimately connected with. And as a result, you can, you know, um, you, know you can approach a subject like, uh, Cal's Hill, for instance, right? I recently wrote about that, how the Astros are getting rid of that. This is a pretty, like, how do I put this politely? Who would really care about this, right? Like, they're getting rid of some, like, hump in the middle of center field. But I took the time to interview the people involved with the Hill, with the Astros organization, and it created a very real sentimentality. It made it, 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 it depicted it as a heartfelt issue among sports fans. Um, and that was a real pleasure. I mean, it's a great example, like I said, of something that would perhaps seem innocuous elsewhere, but in the world of sports, it has an elevated, it has its own personality. It's its own character. And I got to report it as such. So, um, you know, that was a long answer. I hope you don't mind. 
It's an interesting point you make because I actually have on my bookshelf right now. I read through the greatest sports writing of the last century. I think is the name of that title. And you know, guys like John Updike and Tom Wolfe were writing sports features when they weren't writing novels and things of much you know weightier uh, literary ambitions. And, and it always seemed to draw in people. I don't know what it is about sports myself because I'm a I'm a have a creative writing degree from the University of Houston. So I had ambitions to be a novelist one day when I was much younger, and I sort of just felt myself drawn to sports. I think there is something. Uh, you're right. Something weighty. People's hearts are really invested in this stuff, and it does kind of matter. And uh, I was you know, another piece that you wrote recently that I kind of wanted to take a look at was the uh, the Art Briles piece because that's been a topic of discussion on this show. My co-host is a Baylor alum. The other co-host is a Baylor alum. We talk a lot about that. And so I'm wondering when you talk about people's feelings and people's feelings being wrapped up in something. What was your impression coming away from that Art Briles situation in terms of whether he will coach again, whether he deserves to coach again, and the way people feel about that? Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is the most polarizing subject matter, I think probably in Texas sports right now, you know, um, there seems to be no doubt he will get another job. I, and I, I don't say that as somebody who cares either way if he does, frankly, but it's just, there's this assumption and whether it's something I'm gleaning from the zeitgeist or it is something that people are vocalizing. I mean, no matter how many damning stories come out about this school and no matter how many stories tie him to yeah, the dysfunction over those issues at the school. Um, it just doesn't seem to have any effect on whether he will coach again. Um, in the, what I learned through doing my story, and just to, uh, to detail what it was about for anybody that hasn't read it, the whole story is not about the details of the scandal. The story is about looking at other coaches who have gone through similar scandals or gone through just traumatic uh, scandals in general and how they fared and whether they got rehired you know, or I should say hired at other schools afterward, or they were, you know, basically blacklisted. And I spoke with guys like Gary Barnett, uh, who used to coach Northwestern Colorado, who in the early 2000s was embroiled in uh, a sexual assault scandal uh, for players uh, on his team. And I spoke to Dave Bliss, who was a former Baylor basketball coach who, you know, lied about a player who was murdered because he was trying to cover up how he actually paid for the kid's tuition. Uh, so to Butch Davis, who was ousted from UNC after an academic scandal. And these guys, you know, explained how hard it is to get back into football. That said, there are also plenty of examples of people that got back into sports after scandals. And the, I mean, really almost the unanimous opinion is that although it seems difficult or will be difficult for most guys, everybody thinks our browse is going to get another job. And I just think that's because he's like venerated in the football community, that that fraternal bond is really strong with him. Uh, he certainly has not shied away from approaching the public. And although I don't think he has said anything, I, I actually seriously do not think he has said anything substantive to uh, defend his role in what happened at Baylor and how they clearly as an institution um, maybe ignored his strong, um, but they really did not treat sexual assault allegations with the appropriate amount of attention um, and care that they have to be treated. Um, and he definitely played a role in that. Uh, still, nothing he has said on television, nothing he said to Tim Rinaldi in that interview persuaded me to think that um, he you know, was absolved of any blame. But uh, it just doesn't really seem to matter. You know, It's just that he's out there, he's confident, he's unbelievably, I think, likable. His personality is very likable. Um, but in the football community, I can just tell you from speaking with people that uh, it's an assumption that he's going to get hired. And, and certainly, you know, with the situations that are going on right now at 
LSU and firing Les Miles and all the controversy surrounding, not controversy, all the pressure on Charlie Strong and stuff. You know, coaches get fired these days more often. The turnover is you know, more frequent than it's ever been. Uh, there's just no doubt that Browse will get looked at. Browse will get considered. And Browse probably will, will be back. If not in a Power 5 conference, uh, he'll definitely wind up at some school, probably fix that school in a season or two, and then leave and finally be back in the Power 5. I have no doubt about that. So divorcing the issue from Art Briles a little bit, is it an issue in sports that, that really the only metric by which people are truly judged and people truly care about is winning? Because I think that the attitude, if you relate it back to Art Briles, is, hey, he can help a program win. What does it matter what he's done elsewhere? We want to bring this guy in. Is that like a more uh, a universal issue in the world of sport? That, that's, a, that's an oversimplification. It's not, it's not the most important thing. It's actually not, and even in college, winning is actually not the only or it's, it's not such an overwhelming consideration that character um, is overlooked. I, I think specifically, it's, it's just, um, I think it, it, a lot of it is about, we still in 2016 are not treating sexual assault allegations with the kind of severity they really need to be treated with. I actually think it's that. You know, like, let's say, try another example. Okay, Kelvin Sampson for instance, right? He was the former head basketball coach at Oklahoma. He's now the head basketball coach at University of Houston. He coached with the Rockets for a while. He basically was blacklisted from college basketball for years because he sent too many text messages to recruits, right? Like it's, it's like totally ridiculous and insane in retrospect that that is why. And it's because he broke the rules. He broke NCAA violations. And that is treated with this, you know, ghastly severity and utter shock uh, way more than whether our Bryles knowingly, mm, I wouldn't say cover up, whether he knowingly ignored and did not treat with sincerity and sensitivity sexual assault allegations against his players. Uh, it's just seen as like a non-football entity, that entire problem. And that is a huge issue. Um, so, it, you know, like, it's not that winning trumps stuff like that or that winning is held um, so piously above everything else that we ignore character flaws. I actually specifically think that when it comes to, um, you know, like players sexually abusing, sexually assaulting, sexually harassing um, students or, you know, whatever have you, getting into trouble at off-campus parties, I do, coaches are not held uh, – to the same fire that they are if they violate an NCAA rule, which is really, it's just insane. It's just ridiculous. I, well, you've 100% convinced me. I will uh, I will alter my perspective and questioning in the future. Interesting you bring up Calvin Sampson, a uh, good friend of the show. He's been on the show a number of times. We love Coach Sampson. We're certainly glad he's getting opportunities here in town. So I wonder, what, uh, what's coming up for you? What are you working on? Can you talk about the, uh, the stories that you're kind of uh, fixing on and, and uh, beginning to write down and things you're kind of looking at coming up in the future? One story I'm working on right now is about how Texas this year, the state of Texas, happens to have four black head coaches in college football. And this is, uh, I mean, it's totally new. Each of these coaches, you know, we already know about um, Kevin Sumlin and Charlie Strong, but also there's uh, Frank Wilson at Texas State, and there is Everett Withers at University of Texas San Antonio. I, th I think I had that right. I'm going to mix those up. But anyway, um, and each of these guys is the first black head coach at their program. Now, it's an interesting sign of progressivism 
in, of all places, Texas. And it's not to suggest that, you know, like it was so purposeful or there is such there's a direct causation for it being in Texas. It might not be, but it's simply interesting that, um, you know, maybe we've come a really long way. Uh, and I've spoken to all these guys, in addition to a ton of other people, Tony Dungy, Lovey Smith, uh, Romeo Cremel. Uh, so, and sorry, Romeo Cremel. And uh, to get an idea of where we are on the issue of minority hires in sports and college football specifically, which has had a really dreadful track record. And um, you know, to cut to the chase, at large, it's still an, an issue that we're not close to doing well on, actually, that the numbers of uh, black head coaches in college football are still so low. But that this is happening in Texas is a sign that we are heading in the right direction. That's basically the summation of that. Um, and that I think is going to be a really, really interesting story for people to read. It taps into exactly what you and I were talking about before with the stories I pursue, which is it's going to have a broader appeal. It's a story about race and sports, which is always fascinating, always interesting. Um, and I imagine it'll be a topic of discussion for, for readers, for, uh, maybe even other outlets like yourself to talk about after uh, the story comes out. <laughs> yes. We certainly enjoy consuming and talking about these things. It is, uh, is what we live for in essence. And I have to say, Hunter, uh, I am, I am fabulously impressed with your work and so glad you're here in town. I'm looking forward to following up with these, uh, these pieces you're working on and writing. And I think you have perhaps the most interesting job in the city from my perspective. So welcome to town. First of all, we're glad you're here. And and uh, we also want the listeners to go follow you on social media, wherever that might be. How can they find you and get a hold of you and read what you've written? Well, if they haven't already swiped through my dating profile, um, <laughs> anybody can find my stuff at um, HunterAtkins.com. That's my full name and my website. Or my Twitter handle is HunterAtkins35. Uh, and it's uh, my last name is A T K I N S. So that's the that's the easiest place to find my stuff. Although I'm, I'm not gonna lie, my my Twitter is pretty boring. I do not get into Twitter fights with people. Uh, I don't like constantly churn out stuff about uh, the election. Uh, I'd say I probably only tweet maybe four or five tweets a day, if even that. Uh, but the best reason to follow is actually because I'm always gonna tweet out my own work. And if uh, you like my work, it's certainly be a lot easier than. I'm not going to lie, like paying for a subscription to the Houston Chronicle to get to the paywall or, you know, God forbid anybody actually pick up a, you know, an inky newspaper these days. So if anybody takes an interest in my work, uh, Twitter is certainly the easiest place to find it. And if they want to read about, you know, you mentioned before the stuff I did in my career before I got here, which involves I've investigated murders. Uh, I embedded with the U.S. Coast Guard to track cocaine smugglers in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Um, I did all sorts of, you know, weird stuff. I wrote about food for years, actually, for Forbes. Uh, they can check that out on my website. Uh, the most interesting man in the world, Hunter Atkins, and it sounds like he's single, judging from the dating profile <laughs> commentary. So, ladies, uh, those ladies of you that listen to the show, uh, you can certainly jump on that. Well, Hunter, it's been an absolute joy. I'm sorry we have to cut it so short, but uh, we want you back again, man. We can't wait to read what you're writing, and uh, we can't wait to have you back on the show. I want to be back, and I'm really grateful that uh, you reached out and gave me the opportunity. I look forward to talking more, Kevin. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Alex Del Barrio, who is a host and reporter for Sports Radio 610. And Alex, we appreciate you joining us this week on the podcast. And just for clear transparency, uh, we are actually recording this episode prior to the Texans game against the Vikings this week. And uh, the Texans enter the game 3-1. and one. Uh, You've had some injury concerns a little bit this year with J.J. Watt. Uh, the offense has sputtered with Brock Osweiler uh, throwing six interceptions, which equals... Uh, his total that he had in eight games last year with the Broncos. Will Fuller has emerged as a go-to wide receiver. 
are these Texans capable of making a, a playoff run despite the weak AFC South this year? Uh, I think a playoff run is still a yet-to-be-determined situation. I think it's yet-to-be-determined for a lot of teams uh, in the NFL. I mean, you get to a situation where we're four weeks into the season and the Arizona Cardinals, who everyone kind of picked to be one of their teams going to the Super Bowl out of the NFC, is one and three. The L.A. Rams, who we've been saying that Jeff Fisher can't coach and how is Case Keenum their quarterback, and they're three and one. Uh, so you look at the Houston Texans and, and you're like, well, they're three and one. Uh, all three of their victories coming at home to the Bears, who are not very good and, and obviously are now with Brian Hoyer as their quarterback. Uh, Kansas City, uh, which I think is the most impressive win of the three, um, but they're still kind of a work in progress as well as they try to get Jamal Charles back. And, um, and you saw how badly they performed on Sunday Night uh, uh, Football against, uh, against the Steelers. And then you look at uh, the other the other win against Tennessee, in which the offense looked great for the first you know uh, first two quarters of football, and then in the second half they really took the foot off the gas pedal. So I think the jury is still out on the Texans, and, and obviously what they weren't able to do in New England is is uh, is a huge problem. I think, and I think there's a reason that Bill O'Brien took over the play calling. But one thing is for sure. Uh, they're not going to get to the playoffs, or at least they're not going to make a run in the playoffs unless they continue to, to, to find ways to get the football to, to DeAndre Hopkins, who uh, really had the one catch in the game this past weekend against Tennessee. And um, Although he's not upset about it, it's one of those things that he's your best player out there, and I know Will Fuller's lighting the world on fire, but you need more than just one weapon, and DeAndre Hopkins is supposed to be that. Well, so we'll see how well this offense comes around as they take on Minnesota, who's – proven to be probably if they're not the best team in the nfl uh, right now they're at least in the top three yeah and kind of diving into bill o'brien and taking over the play call duties that uh, the texans in the first three games of the season they were averaging 14 points again against a lesser competition the titans they put up 27 points but you still had some issues whether it was clock management at the end of the game uh, and kind of the offense sputtering a little bit after that hot start against the titans is this the right move for Bill O'Brien to take over the play calling duty? And do you see a potential change in the offensive coordinator position during the offseason? Uh, in the offseason, I can see it happening because uh, I, but I can't see uh, I can't see a scenario where George Godsey would reassume the play calling duties. I think that that would just be a strange kind of move. I know there's uh, some closeness with Godsey and with O'Brien, and I think a lot of people expected uh, a couple of years ago when when. Godsey was just the quarterback's coach that one day he would be the offensive coordinator and that he would be taking over the play calling duties and I think as we've seen over the course of at least the first three games of the season that um, I think Godsey has struggled in a way uh, how to utilize his weapons especially in the running game and I think a lot of that perhaps might have to do with the fact that he hasn't really had a talented runner like Lamar Miller because a lot of his run uh, last year's OC he didn't he didn't have Arian Foster all he had to deal with was Jonathan Grimes and Alfred Blue who aren't as prolific and athletic as a running back as uh, as you have now with Lamar Miller so uh, I think his lack of creativity kind of bothered some people. And I think the the lack of being able to get uh, Hopkins the football uh, is one of the other things too. Although Bill O'Brien didn't look like he was capable of doing that either. So I can see them making a change. I can also see Bill O'Brien just kind of sticking with the play calling duties. There's, um, they might bring in a coordinator who doesn't call the plays and just kind of works on the game plan throughout the week. 
But uh, it'll be interesting to see how this kind of plays out moving forward. Um, I mean, 27 points is, is good, but seven of that came on special teams. You still would like to see this offense that paid a lot of money for Brock Osweiler, paid a lot of money for Lamar Miller, be able to put up more than 20 points offensively against the Tennessee Titans. And kind of on the on the note of Brock Osweiler, I mean, we mentioned his early season struggles, six interceptions in the first four games of the season. Uh, do you think the play calling has anything to do with that, or is he just uh, kind of adjusting to learning a new system? Yeah, I, I'm 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 not sure where his issues lie. I think one of the main things that that kind of bothered a lot of people on him is uh, his inability to to make make throws under pressure. And I think if you look at the numbers. All of his picks, and usually this happens with with quarterbacks. Uh, you, you're going to get heavy heavy um, uh, interception numbers when you're under pressure. Uh, obviously, your completion percentage is going to go down, but it's staggering the difference between Brock Osweiler when he's untouched and unpressured to where he is pressured. And I think a lot of that has to do with the offensive line and still not having Dwayne Brown back. I think when Dwayne comes back we're thinking it's going to be this week against minnesota that uh, perhaps he can shore up a little bit of that pass protection for brock and perhaps make some of those throws but uh, i had someone tell me an nfl scout tell me that one of the things that they noticed from brock is he's got kind of happy feet and and you can tell that there's a little bit of nervousness to him when he's making certain throws and i'm wondering uh, you know where that comes from or if he just gets in a situation where, uh, you know, he just doesn't have the correct footwork and that's something that needs to be coached out of him in, in order to, you know, progress as an NFL starting quarterback. I w- wanted to go back, actually, to O'Brien a little bit. Um, you, know, you wrote about the tight end production in the Titans game. Obviously, we talked a little bit about O'Brien taking taking over the play calling duties from Gatsy. Um, but he also said inexplicably that the play calling doesn't matter. So if it doesn't matter, why is he calling the plays, firstly? And secondly, um, how do you think he did? Do you think that's a better long-term uh, uh, prospect for the Texans with him calling the plays instead of George Gatsy? I'm not ready to say that yet. The jury's still out after just one game. And like I said, they only scored 20 points on a Titans team that I think they should have put up more points on. I know they've, they've got some, they've got a physical secondary and things like that. And, and they did a really good job game planning on DeAndre Hopkins to make things difficult for him and doubling him and making him work in, in certain areas of zone coverage. But I, I, I would kind of wait to see on, on what's going to happen uh, with this offense. I, I wrote about the tight ends and, it was so interesting because we've been saying for years, where's the tight action coming in? And, and even when O'Brien, you know, O'Brien was, was the offensive coordinator in New England in 2011 when, you know, they kind of had a two-headed monster at, at those two tight end sets with Gronkowski and, and Aaron Hernandez. And, uh, you know, it was one of those situations, where, would he bring that type of look, that type of offense here? Uh, and then they drafted C.J. Fedorowicz, who hasn't really done a whole lot with his team. They've had Ryan Griffin, but the offense, when, whether Ryan Fitzpatrick was running things or Brian Hoyer or Ryan Mallett last year, hasn't really paid a lot of attention to the tight ends. And you're seeing it right away uh, as, you know, Ryan Griffin gets involved. Of course, Fedorowicz gets the touchdown. The, the two combined for over 100 yards. can't remember the last time that happened with, with one or two Texans tight ends. So, I'm wondering if you'll see a little bit more of that, but as Bill O'Brien likes to say, you know, he's the, they run a game plan offense, and uh, New England obviously does that day in and day out, where they'll change their offense as it fits. I think you can see some signs of that. You know, you go back to to the year where Case Keenum had to start a quarterback against the Baltimore Ravens, 
and they ran a lot of wildcat with Arian Foster and things, things like that. So, so that they could have success. So I don't think Bill O'Brien is uh, the long-term answer, but I think he'll probably be the guy calling for the rest of the season. And as we've seen before, he's great when he's working hands-on with quarterbacks. And if that's what he's going to end up doing and working with Brock Osweiler on a much more hands-on basis than he has been, I think that that can only help Brock in the offense. I thought it was notable in O'Brien's postgame comments the number of times he said, that's on me, that's my fault, I've got that one. And while I think that is, in a sense, admirable from a philosophical standpoint, you want to see a head coach take responsibility. That is his job, after all. I wonder if that speaks to his overall performance, because it's kind of a trend we've seen over a while here, uh, if you're a Houston Texans fan. So do we, as much as we're wondering about Osweiler at the quarterback position, is he the long-term answer? I wonder the same thing about O'Brien. I mean, has he showed us enough as a head coach to say, that's your long-term solution right there? Yeah, whenever anyone brings that type of stuff up uh, or that question up, I think, okay, so who are you replacing him with? He's, I mean, uh, of the other three coaches in the division, a division you're, you're currently winning by two games, uh, he's the only one, I, I believe, that wouldn't be on the hot seat this season if they don't have a winning season or at least close to a winning season, uh, especially since he's gone 9-7 and seven with a cornucopia of quarterbacks over the last two years and they're finally giving him one year. I know he says a lot of those things. Look, Andy Reid has maintained a career in the National Football League despite being probably the worst clock manager in the history of football. Uh, (laughs) His teams win. And I think if Bill O'Brien can show that his teams can win, I think that there's there's some level of of being able to keep him. Look, no coach is perfect. I I mean, you guys go to high school games a lot. I know Kevin, I run into him, and there there are so many questionable coaching moves by – high-profile high school football coaches you would think that would know you know, when to call timeouts or when not to call timeouts or when to go for two and when not to go for two. Uh, and so you see those mistakes made from the high school level and college level and even in the pro level, and I say, well, it's pro football. You should have either someone helping you, and that's probably the way to go. Maybe Bill O'Brien needs someone, someone helping him. Uh, there's been a couple of times where he's, he's challenged when the challenge wasn't really warranted or needed and then hasn't challenged when it's been a key moment of the football game. And I think that's kind of the biggest concern is is paying a little bit more attention to situations where uh, he needs to use the challenge flag. And I, I think it's part of it. I mean, he's in his third season as his NFL head coach. I'm sure there's a lot of nuanced things that you just kind of learn as you go along. Um, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make an excuse for Bill. I just think the alternatives uh, aren't, aren't very bright. And you look at, you look at who else is out there, you know, you're not prying. You're not prying Jim Harbaugh away from Michigan, and you really. I mean, who? I mean, who else? Can, you're going to have probably about six or seven firings. I mean, look at Bruce Arians. Bruce Arians is at uh, is at a one and three start with one of the more talented roster in football. After two years of us praising Bruce Arians for being a genius head coach, so uh, it's one of those things that like no one else can be Belichick and everyone else is kind of going to be second tier for you know, until someone else kind of raises to the top. So we are a weekly show, and because of the vagaries of recording a weekly show, we actually haven't gotten into yet the injury to J.J. Watt, him being out for the season, and how it impacts this defense. And I wonder, 
What is the tangible impact to the defense long-term having J.J. Watt out? I mean, you look, they give up the most yardage they've given up all season to the Titans. I don't find that particularly encouraging. Uh, so I wonder with a guy like Jadeveon Clowney, does he have enough to give you, I don't know, 65%, maybe 75 80% of what J.J. Watt can give you? And is that enough to keep this defense where it needs to be? Uh, the old adage goes is you're not going to replace the reti- re- production of a star player. You're not going to replace the production of a J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt impacts the play on, uh, in a lot of different ways, whether it's you know blocking or disturbing the view of a quarterback uh, when he's trying to make a pass. It's, it's you know getting hits on the quarterback even when it's not a sack, etc. Uh, I, I I don't know if we're going to see uh, that type of production from Clowney. I think he's still he's still learning a lot of, of playing back inside, which is where he played a lot, obviously in college. But, kind of a little different situation and, and against much bigger guys, much more physical guys than he was used to uh, even playing in the SEC. But I think Clowney, at least for my money, I think he's playing excellent and has been all season and he's been taking care of his body and staying healthy and staying on the, staying on the field and uh, getting to the quarterback. He had another sack this past Sunday against Tennessee and Mariota's not an easily sackable quarterback uh, just because of his movement. And I think, you know, showing being able to pursue uh, you'd like to see uh, some of the other defensive linemen kind of step up. You're seeing Whitney Merciless really kind of break out into a really solid pass rusher this year. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be kind of a uh, spread the wealth type of situation as it comes to sack totals this year uh, than you're used to seeing with J.J. Watt on the field. It's a, still a tough loss. You can't lose the best player in football and still say your defense is, is the same. But I think there's a lot of good pieces. I think the linebackers – obviously led by Merciless and getting Cushing back. And Cushing has looked look, look solid in the preseason. I, I hope to see him stay healthy for the rest of the year. The secondary has proved to be excellent. So uh, I'm really looking forward to see how this defense continues to evolve uh, over the course of time without J.J. Watt. So we've spoken a lot about the Texans so far, offensive defense, but we're going to kind of throw a curveball at you here. Last week on the podcast, we were discussing the presidential debates and kind of how bland they were and how we wanted to spice them up a little bit. And uh, it was a group consensus that we decided that uh, there should be a WWE-style uh, debate facing uh, you know, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton together. We know you're a WWE guy. Would uh, Is this something that would be just... Uh, well, I'm, I think it's already a ratings hit. I mean, you look at it's dominated... <laughs> made Monday Night Football have the worst uh, rating in the history of the series. Uh, I think even Monday Night Raw suffered as a result because the the wrestling was going on between Trump and Hillary and it was going on uh, on Monday nights in front of the crowd there. I I, I was just, uh, when I I look at what's happening with the presidential debate, I I just kind of, I've gotten myself shaking my head in a lot of different ways and I won't get too political here, but but I, I think you're right. I would have loved to have seen what I would have loved to have seen is like the lights go out in the middle of the debate, and then just kind of a, a kind of a valley crew of lights start to red, white, and blue, and everyone's kind of wondering what's <laughs> happening, and then and then have Joe Biden come in on a white horse, kind of <laughs> to like final countdown music. Uh, that would have been that would have been great, and then like kind of a podium would come out from underneath the floor, and then he'd come out. All right, let's get this bitch started. So. 
it is so funny you mentioned Joe Biden because on last week on the show when we talked about uh, maybe merging politics and WWE style antics, I actually mentioned Biden as a hype man. So credit to me. Uh, I would say that overwhelmingly I'm pretty ignorant about pro wrestling. Uh, as a kid, I want to say I was 11, 11 and a half years old. I watched quite a bit of pro wrestling uh, for a very brief time. And then there came a stage where I sort of got embarrassed by it. I sort of looked around and said, oh, my God, this is a shameful thing that I'm doing in the secrecy of, uh, of the apartment uh, above the garage. But, you know, looking now, it's a very popular sport or a very popular form of entertainment. A lot of people are invested in WWE and pro wrestling and those stories and those characters and so forth. And I wonder, did I make a mistake when I was 11, 12 years old, kind of turning my back on it? Should I be watching pro wrestling? Well, here's, here's the thing. Well, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are. I was actually at WWE for seven months and then, and then I got released in June. So uh, I, I've been on the inner workings of the thing and I, I've been a fan since I was 11 years old. And... Uh, to me, it's the it's the escapability of it all. A lot of people will look and say, "Well, it's fake." I think, "Well, is is the Avengers real?" When you go watch that, is Batman <laughs> real? Is Superman real? No, it's not. And and it's it's one of those things where it's like it's kind of it's live action, physical theater. Um, and uh, that might look get an eye roll from people who do theater. But I've had people who tell tell me who are in in theater or in live events or in that pro wrestling, especially what WWE does, is kind of the best production because there is there's only one take. You're not doing it over again if you don't like it. It involves physicality and stunts and stuff that you have to really train for, and you're doing it in front of a live audience. So you have to appeal in trying to get a reaction from from kind of a live. Uh, situation where you're getting instant feedback to what you're doing. Um, I've always enjoyed it for, for what it is. You can escape and, and kind of be enthralled in the storyline or, or the physical nature of the match. And if you can get really into a match, if you're really good at what you do and really good at putting on a match, you, the fan as a, as a viewer, you start to lose sight of the fact that this is fake, that, Yes, if you throw a human being off of the ropes, they're not going to bounce back at you. Like, that's something that you just kind of learn to uh, forget about as you kind of kind of watch it. Just the way you can watch any type of, uh, you know, I, I go back to comic book movies or, or things like, like Batman. I, you know, you can go Batman, Batman of the 60s and how just seemingly Adam West had every escapable antidote for any, any poison that Joker or penguin or riddler had in his utility belt like dude like your pillbox isn't that big come on bro but when you're watching the show you're not you're not questioning batman and his ability to have you know be prepared so it's the same thing for me i think a lot of people like it because of the spectacle when you go to a live event you're kind of again get to escape and just kind of enjoy it what it is it's a lot more fan interactive when you're at a live event because there's fewer people it's not televised so you know, it's it's just one of those things where if you grow up with it and you kind of keep growing up with it and you have friends that you can watch it with, uh, it's one of those things. It's an easily tweetable um, thing where you can kind of comment as it's happening. It's it's just it's just it's just phenomenal live entertainment. As I sort of think back to the headlines, I know that recently you had CM Punk cross the fence and go over to fight in the UFC from WWE, and uh, I didn't watch it, of course, but from what I've gathered, it was a pretty big disaster. Uh, as a guy who's a fan of pro wrestling, is that in any way disappointing to you to see that crossover not work out for Punk? Yeah, I think if Kurt Angle, who was a legit Olympic gold medalist, 
had been around MMA as it exists today when he first broke into pro wrestling, I think he would have gone that route and had a lot of success. I think, I think with CM Punk, he's a guy that he's already in his late thirties, really had no training. Yeah. He, he'd done a little more more training, you know, I think early in his pro wrestling career, but nothing really formal. Uh, he's, he's a guy who's had back surgeries, multiple injuries, uh, multiple knee injuries, multiple elbow injuries. I mean, he's a guy that's really kind of been put back together, so to speak, after a really long and grueling pro wrestling career. And if you look at him, he's not he's not the biggest guy in the world, and he doesn't have a lot of uh, of of size and uh, to him. So taking the bumps each and every night, you know, three hundred nights a year in WWE. Doesn't uh, doesn't lead well to being as, as physically fit as he'd like to be. So stepping into the octagon against guys who train for this, who obviously uh, have a little extra added, you know, you don't want to be the guy that lost to a pro wrestler. So there's that whole thing. So I, I, it's not disappointing to me. I, I'm, I was really disappointed when Punk left WWE because of, I found him incredibly entertaining, and, and I, th- I thought he was one of the best in the world at what he did. So it was tough to see him go to UFC. I think a lot of people just wanted to see him get his ass kicked. I honestly was just, I was just curious to see how he did, but I wasn't really rooting for or against him. Conor McGregor is probably the uh, you know the most hyped guy right now in the UFC, and he talks so much smack not only leading up to his fights but after the fights. Is he a guy uh, that is just built for entertainment and built for something like WWE? Oh uh, yeah, I, I totally think you know he he, he always keeps coming out. And- uh, making different quotes about you know fake WWE is or whatever. I fully believe when he decides to hang it up with uh, with UFC that he's he'll go to WWE. He's just incredibly entertaining. His trash talking ability is superb. I think he's a guy that's as big of a star in a in a sport. And, and I'll say this about UFC in a sport that doesn't create stars the way it probably should or at the level the way it, as as it should. Um, it has one in Conor McGregor. Uh, when you look at the fact that you no longer have Ronda Rousey um, in, around at UFC just because she hasn't fought in so long since her first loss, Conor McGregor is really hes really the it guy. He's the it star of UFC. And I think, um, I think he's just a guy that's built for, for that, has made, helped make UFC. Uh, I'm actually curious to see what he'll do when he decides to finally hang it up. Yeah, it should be pretty interesting. And uh, again, we have Alex Del Barrio from Sports Radio 610 joining us on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And Alex, you know, we've talked everything from Texans. You enlightened us on WWE and UFC. I feel like Kevin and I can at least sound more knowledgeable on this. And uh, for our fans that kind of want to learn more information about, uh, you know, the sports and everything that you do, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, best ways on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. So at Alex Delbar on Twitter, uh, they can find me there. Um, I'm on Facebook as well. I just kind of I just started my Facebook page, which is basically it's really just everything I write for SportsRadio610.com goes on there. But you know, hopefully, uh, I, I, I'm going to be launching a, a pretty exciting project uh, uh, with one of our, my co coworkers at SportsRadio610, Josh Beard. We're going to be doing an NBA podcast which we will debut very in the very near future. And we'll post that on Twitter, on my Twitter and on my Facebook. My Facebook is the Alex Del Barrio, if you want to look for it there, uh, one of those pages. And But uh, Twitter is the best way to find me, at Alex Del Barrio. Well, we definitely look forward to hearing that podcast. It should be a lot of fun. We're definitely uh, excited about the NBA season. And again, make sure to follow Alex on Twitter. Uh, just search Alex Del Barrio on Twitter. And Alex, uh, we appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. 
Not a problem. Thanks, guys. Closing time. Again, this is episode 64 of the Weekly Brew podcast, and it wouldn't be another episode of the Weekly Brew without awesome guests. And thanks to Alex Del Barrio and Hunter Atkins for joining us on this week's show. Kevin, what were your thoughts? Well, uh, you bragged at the top of the show, so I'm going to brag here. I have worked with Alex Del Barrio in the booth before. We've done a little halftime segment for uh, covering some high school football, and he is the consummate professional, a guy that I think is very talented, and we were pleased to have him on the show. And uh, I I don't know. I, I don't know if he swayed me. I might have to fire up some WWE, if that's in fact what it's still called, and watch some professional wrestling, which I have not done since I was, I want to say 11, 11 and a half years old. I used to play a lot of Royal Rumble on the uh, SNES when I was a kiddo, but uh, apparently there's something there. I mean, if they're employing guys like Alex Del Barrio, which they did for a long time, and he's promoting the sport, um, if you want to call it a sport... I should back off of that. It's a sport. We'll say it's a sports entertainment. In any case, I may need to watch them now. He may have swayed me. UFC, I'm still pretty out on. So, Jeremy, Alex actually bought into the theory that we had on last week's show, which is that uh, presidential debates actually needed to include WWE. And he suggested that Joe Biden essentially be the hype man, as Kevin so eloquently put it last week. But uh, is would that be something uh, you know that might draw you into WWE? Oh, I mean... How how could it not? Oh my gosh! To have uh, a dramatic entrance with a monologue by each candidate, you know, shirts getting torn off, chairs being thrown. What couldn't be entertaining about that? No, that's awesome. Um, I, I'm I'm actually kind of uh, curious to uh, see if maybe we could uh, you know see any parodies on late night shows uh, combining the two. But uh, I guess I can dream. Anyways, but yeah, no, that would. <laughs> <laughs> just trying. Sorry, I'm looking at, at pictures of Trump now. Um, so a lot of uh, people on the internet have put Trump's head on like various bodies. So uh, there is one of him here on the body of a wrestler. So it is sort of uh, fun to to toy around with. So Alec Baldwin, Saturday Night Live, we're making a suggestion to you: make this happen. Have a wrestling match between you and Hillary Clinton on Saturday Night Live. But uh, something else that we want you to do, as always, is to leave an iTunes review. And Kevin, tell the listeners how they can do it. Did anyone claim Rockets courtside seats yet? Yeah, weirdly enough, we offered them the moon, essentially. Uh, courtside seats at a Rockets game, which, uh, which you know, I share those tickets with my father. I'm not really mine to offer, but I did anyway, and we had nobody take us up on it. So that's uh, supremely disappointing. I'm wondering what I would have to offer to people in order to get some more reviews. So Techno Coog, from way back in the day now, three weeks, still our favorite listener of the week for three weeks running. Uh, it's fairly simple. You go to iTunes, and you click Ratings and Reviews. Here, if you're on your mobile device, which a lot of you guys are, we know that, go to Search. You can't just hit it from your podcast queue. You actually have to search for our podcast, find it in the search, and then click ratings and reviews. But from there, it's a very simple process. And I swear my hand before God that if you contact me by email, which is on my Twitter handle, or on Twitter, at Cook, I will walk you through the process step by step. I will even write the review for you, which I swear I've never done before. But uh, but I would do it for sure. So, guys, it should be very simple. We should have lots more reviews than we have based on our listenership. I'm extremely disappointed, as always. It's almost getting tiresome even hearing about it. You guys don't want to hear about it. You want to hear cool reviews. So get out there and write some and I'll read them. And make sure to go to iTunes. Tell us what you like. Give us guest ideas. If you want to have more UFC talk, let us know on iTunes. And again, thanks to Alex Del Barrio for uh, talking UFC, talking UFC, WWE, and also uh, a little breakdown on the Texans and, uh, you know, through the first quarter of the season for that program. Uh, But guys, I really enjoyed uh, this episode of the Weekly Group Podcast, but I'm going to humble brag again. I'm in Paris. I think I'm going to have to cut this episode short. And on behalf of my co-hosts this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember this week, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do, always, always brew responsibly.
You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 